Welcome to the Dance Centre podcast. I am your host, Claire French, and I'm joining you from the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples, also known as Vancouver, Canada. I'll be talking to dancers, choreographers and other members of the dance world here on the West Coast to find out more about their creative work and practices and to discuss what it means to us to be dance professionals today. Thanks for joining us. The artistic director of Stand Up Dance, queer contemporary dance artist Megan O'Shea, works across forms and borders, seeking to disrupt dominant paradigms and offer alternatives to binary systems. From dance theatre mashups and site-specific works to films and interactive installations. Their work is almost impossible to categorize and has been presented across Canada and Europe, as well as in New York, Mexico and Morocco. Megan was the first graduate of the Contemporary Dance Program at the School of Dance, Ottawa, and is a recipient of the K.M. Hunter Award in Dance. Megan? Yes. Would you like to just give us a little bit of a background or like a semi-deep dive into your career path <laughs> for our listeners? <laughs> mm-hmm. what, would you, what would you like to share? Oh. Where would you like to start? This is how I like to tell this story. Great. I can start with how I like to tell the story, which is old and bears sometimes bears revisiting and unpacking. But mm-hmm. so I trained mostly as a teenager, I trained with the group, which was still de la Place Royale and in the process of becoming the group dance lab, which was to put it diplomatically an old school kind of methodology and leadership style. Mm-hmm. But I started in the late 80s and into the early and mid 90s. So the dream I had of being a dancer was to be part of like Ballet Fée de la Bay, or like Meg Stewart's Damaged Goods or Rui Horta when he was leading Soap, uh, like these giant companies, or in fact, of course, La 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 Human Steps, closer to home. These giant companies that were doing these mega kind of productions. And it's like, that's the moment that my vision formed. And then there was a recession. And then those giant companies stopped touring to this in the same way. And then slowly the company model started to, I mean, really that wasn't right away, but the slow, the company model started to disintegrate. And Canada has a lack of choreographic training programs. And so I didn't understand exactly how much I was a maker, choreographer, director. I thought I was a dancer. And in fact, there is like some, what, there's some joy or relief or something in wanting to be the dancer and not have to take on all of the responsibilities. Because again, in our lack of infrastructure in the scene, as the choreographer, you're also the grant writer, the producer, the stage manager, maybe the costume designer, the company manager, like, you know, it's all or it's like someone could just hire me to dance or I could do everything else. Do you mind if I interject for a second? Because no. we're of a similar generation and experience. I was in England and I was feeling the same. One of the things, like reflecting back upon that time period, I feel like there is now we can talk about dance makers and choreographers as being something different. And then artistic directors different again. And then, mm-hmm. you know, like, so so I feel like there was a, a, a time period there where we actually were part of, like you say, like one, a recession, but also kind of a regeneration into like dance making, becoming a kind of career path that we were at the age where we were, could be influenced by dance makers as much mm-hmm. as we could be influenced by choreographers. And so suddenly there was a third thing we could be you know, this dancer, dance maker, choreographer, fourth, if you want artistic director, but like you're saying, like Mm -hmm. that was a chosen few. So I feel like a kinship with you in terms of training, where there was this kind of like, how can somebody help me do what it is that I want to do when I'm not quite sure what it is that I do in dance. So I feel you, I feel Mm -hmm. you there. My reasons for dancing and my interest in dancing like you were also about making and I was a very obedient dancer to a certain degree 
but I thought I was an obedient dancer. I thought I was doing everything, but the way that I was doing it was interpreting in such a way that sometimes people couldn't do anything with it because I was already moving it into my territory, (laughs) what I would want to do with it. And so I I feel like maybe you and I, there cross paths at that age anyway. Yeah, I know. Please do continue. No, and I mean, I didn't understand this. This is very sophisticated of you to like be able to look back like this. Um, I can remember being in a Sylvain Aymar workshop in my 20s, and we were the partnering workshop, and I couldn't understand the feedback because I knew I was doing it right and well and having fun. And someone, one of the other people in the workshop said, wow, the way you do it doesn't look like how anyone else is doing it yeah but I couldn't navigate that like I couldn't decipher what that means like I I I still don't know if that was like a good comment I mean I didn't get hired so I guess it wasn't like (laughs) it wasn't what was wanted but I didn't understand that because I think like we're saying we came from a time when you were still meant to look like everyone else a little bit yeah dance like everyone else yeah, exactly. So so I started making in order to be able to be dancing. And then it was very clear that I am a boss, <laughs> that I like to, <laughs> I mean, actually, I don't know when exactly it was really clear that I was a boss, but on my 23rd birthday, I was in Scotland and I was bartending uh, and my birthday is New Year's Day. So this was New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. I was bartending in, in Edinburgh and I had a near panic, not really a panic attack, but like a freak out because I realized that I wanted to be like touring the world internationally with my work by the time I was 27. And just like Meg Stewart, and here I was almost 23. And there was no way that was going to happen. Like I already knew the timeline wasn't going to work. Like, (laughs) from the bartending in Edinburgh and like making a solo, like I was making a solo, Uh, but there was no way that I was going to get connected enough in that timeline to be on the world stage the way I wanted to be. So I feel like I got sidetracked a lot of times in my life, mostly by trying to impress people, like achieve things that were consuming, but not expansive. I feel like there's a connection there a connection between a compulsion mm. or a, a genuine like intuitive feeling that you want to put something out in the world and you want to be something in the world. But then there's this pressure that we put on ourselves that that looks a certain way. And so for me, and I think in dance, a lot of the time, this appro- seeking approval is part of the training, a part of the Western, uh, you know, kind of Western European dance kind of training. And then people pleasing goes hand in hand with that training. And so no wonder that your compulsion to create and become famous would also be caught before the horse would be like you wanting to be in that position before you'd been able to actually articulate for yourself what that looked like. So let's pick up where you uh, poured your last pint. (laughs) Yeah, so then I started making, so I made a lot of solo shows. and, And I think this is really interesting in a way, like I have been touring parts of the world with my solo work, but it didn't and doesn't always look the way I wanted it or the way I thought it would look. So historically, I get a small or medium, well, small gig somewhere with a, you know, in any place could be across Canada, the States, Mexico, and a bunch of Europe and some of the geographic Europe, let's say, and all of those countries, whenever I get a small a gig, then I expand the gig and I go like, ah, where can I teach in the neighborhood? And uh, I'd like to, I'd like to offer some workshops and I'd like to engage. And I don't know, maybe there's a teenage company and I can set a piece with, for them, you know, or who knows what, but I tend to pack in so that each time I'm somewhere, it is a duration and there's as many activities as can happen as possible. And those have a bunch of reasons, but the like the selfish kind of reflection on that is the first time I had what I really thought was the famous, it wasn't famous, but like the proper big festival gig with one of my solos, they flew me in and out within 24 hours or 36 hours. Hmm. I met only the crew and 
for five minutes, the artistic director or something. I, my show was early in the evening and I was going to meet people after all of the other shows, but I couldn't come down after the show enough to go see the next show. So I ended up sitting in my hotel room by myself, talking to my mom on the phone. Like I was in somewhere in Europe and, you know, she's in Canada. And I was like, wow, I finally, I finally made it. This is the full glamour one. Like I didn't meet anyone after the show because they all ran off to the next show because it was a festival. But I, it was the one that they did all the, they paid for all the travel. They paid for the, they booked me in the hotel. They gave me a per diem. They gave me a proper fee. Like it was all the things, you know, I did like I was in the newspaper, like whatever, all the good things. Right. But it was, but I was like, this is, this is terrible. I'm going back to my, you know, bigger community engagement model where like, I don't care if I'm not in the fancy theater, I would rather be in the warehouse stage where people are hanging out. This is, you know, while I made solos, I was, I also thought it was, there's an irony to like, I'm one of the most social people. I'm such an extrovert. So the process of doing the solo part alone and is terrible. Like it's no, it's like I love performing obviously. And I love the exchange that happens in that moment. It's like, it's like the rug being pulled out from under your feet. If that stops like 10 minutes after you're done and like, yeah you walk out into the theater lo- lobby and it's empty already or, you know, whatever. This is like, that sucks. That's not, that's not how I want to do this. Yeah. So then I really went, so then I sort of re in, recommitted to that model that I'd been developing sort of intuitively and sort of, yeah, defined my, got clearer about articulating my values. Yeah. So let's talk a bit, a little bit about that. Cause I, from the information I was given as research for this and this this idea of a, a slow tour model was a, a a phrase that is attached to you in this uh, you know connected to your work here and I I love that I think you know in my notes to you as well I put that I'm familiar with a a similar model in the UK that has a kind of community outreach component to a traveling piece and so I think what's what I'd love for you to talk about a little bit more and for you to feel like you can give this a bit more attention in this um, podcast for the listeners is uh, you've already talked about how you connect with the local community in many ways, but I feel like there's another level of that where you can almost like unpack the work that and the research that you're interested in and the work itself and choreography itself by reaching different groups of people and by staying in a place for longer than just what you're talking about, just being flown in for the performance, then, you know, walking outside and nobody's there. And then you get on a plane and you go somewhere else and you do the same thing and you say hi to all the tech crew and you know, all the tech crew and all of these places (laughs) (laughs) and they're the only people you meet. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) so I I love that you have this idea of this slow tom model. So could you, could you talk a little bit maybe about how most recently because you have been in residence in, in lots of places, how that's kind of panned out for you a little bit, or, you know, maybe not necessarily where it starts. I think you can use that in the cycle, but just mm. your experiences of your different experiences of this idea of the slow tour. Yeah. I mean, part of it is that to create a good working environment. So now, sorry, I should say mm. now yeah. the piece that we are, that I've been working on now for the last couple of years and that we are bringing to the dance center is Anna Tamalia, which is an ensemble piece. Mm. And so having started this piece during the pandemic and working with an international cast and team of collaborators, assumptions and understandings and misunderstandings and what people can deal with and mental health and there's a really big range and I'm pretty good at moving fast and I'm very good at moving by myself Mm -hmm. but when we're responsible for more people and traveling as a pack and needing to make group decisions and the human-centeredness that is not just a budget-centeredness in order for sustainability And when we talk about sustainability, it has to be all kinds of sustainability. So part of the impulse is to create good experience for everyone. Mm. So we are like seven or eight people on tour. And we want people to, I want them to engage 
I mean, there's lots of reasons for having a really slow tour, which is in this project, we have a chorus of local folks or a group of local folks who will perform as the chorus alongside our core cast of five. So in order to work with people locally long enough to get them integrated and again, to give them a good experience. And so I feel like, I don't know, also personally, when when artists, come through town and perform and if I'm really inspired by them then I definitely want to take that workshop with them or I definitely want to bump into them in some kind of place where I can chat to them and my experience of being that artist and other people getting to tell me their experiences or reflect on them or work with something through a workshop is I just think it's so great it's so enriching I don't know what like a better way to say it is like, I mean, I am I'm wired for this kind of engagement or interaction. Like, you know, I love I love it. I love it. And I assume that enough other people will, too. Yeah. And I think it's also about creatively engaging, isn't it? So that you like you have a creative experience together. So then the the level of conversation can tie in to being artists, traveling artists can tie in to being artists within a city or artists in an environment where there is a level of w- at which, you know, there are, there's lots of unsaid connection. There's lots of speaking that happens between bodies that isn't verbal, you know, that is, it's so lovely to be able to feel like you can do that in another country, in another city to, to the, rather than just the people that you often work with. And like you say, it's also engaging for the traveling ensemble to then have these experiences and different experiences to each other. I mean, obviously everybody does, but, but there's a different level then. It allows for enriching experiences for every member of your ensemble in that city. So it makes me think back to what you were saying about not wanting to be necessarily isolated as a solo performer. It's also in some ways ensuring that your ensemble doesn't get that same experience of feeling like we're just a unit traveling to all of these countries and we don't get to talk to anybody else. You know, we just talk to each other, you know, while we're traveling. So we're on our phone, we're all on our phones to our families in the changing rooms, you know, like multiplying your experience of solo work. You're avoiding that by connecting with the community in this way. I am. Yeah. Doesn't it also invite, and strategically speaking, which is not necessarily a, a, you know, a a dirty word, that if the community is engaged, then they're more likely to bring their friends and bring an audience to see you, to see the show. I just had that with Nova Dance. You know, I was one of the performers in the local, in the local work that was a prelude to Nova Dance's uh, Swaha. And, Mm -hmm. and so I feel like we built a sisterhood through that, developed that because of the community work we did. And I'm under no delusion that we were the, you know, prelude to the, the touring work. Like we, we are replaced in each city it goes to, but we can't be replaced at the same time. That experience, nobody else can have the experience I had. And it's yeah. extremely, you know, rewarding. So, so I, I really feel that. I think it's such a wonderful model. Can you always do that model? Do you try to tour with that model? Or is it a balance? No. For this project, that's the only way to do it. Yeah. There can be, I mean, now this is getting into like the producing part of it because it's really expensive to bring eight people for two weeks to different places. Yeah. So there are, there are some different, you know, we could bring, we can have four of us somewhere for the whole time. And then some other, you know, the rest of the cast joins us just for the week of the show or, you know, mm. this kind of thing. So there's like a little bit of changing conditions on it but it also and this is one of those things you know more work begets more work begets more Mm. you know results and but also partnerships so part of this is like in Vancouver we're partnering with Rainbow Refugee which is this very cool organization that supports queer folks who've come to Canada as refugees and this is building interesting bridges and this is a bit of a new thing you know like we've in the last not so long I have agency that I didn't used to know I had I guess that's what it is so there was a certain moment a bunch of years ago in my I guess mid-30s so I went off to Europe and discovered that I was as good or better than anyone anywhere instead of this like wondering why in the system that I was a part of in Canada I couldn't get ahead. I couldn't get anywhere. The very best was 
congratulations, we'll give you a grant and you can do the exact same thing again. But there was no jumping up. There was no moving forward. And I can remember coming back from a summer of doing all the workshops and teaching some and performing some in Europe and saying to a grant officer, hey, I'm good enough. (laughs) And she was like, of course you are. But I was like, yeah, but the system tells me I'm not. Oh. And she's like, I know the system is difficult, you know? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Well, but until now, I have been like this like self-imposed oppression thing where I assume that it's me that is not good enough and always competing against or to try and find space in the system and the system is just not making space. So mm. part of that is deciding to like throw the net wide and be happy and willing and excited and curious to work anywhere and discover the conditions and assumptions and perspectives and different contexts uh, in all different places, which is like humbling, constantly humbling Mm -hmm. because you can never know anything (laughs) because what you are really sure of, you end up somewhere and the way that they look at that, that, whatever it is, is so different and justified that you're like, Oh yeah, my, my, you know, firmly held value or belief doesn't work in this situation at all. Right. And that's super, I mean, it's humbling. It keeps one agile and adaptable. So I think the skill, there's something about this, there's a skill actually, and it's a skill that you can develop from this kind of work, which is to recognize that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because not everybody would be aware of it being interpreted differently. It would just be seen as interpreted wrong. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's, there's, there's something about recognizing that there's, as you've said before, and I truly believe this, that there are different perspectives and different insights that can inform a work or inform a process. And to tackle something while we might, as an individual, decide it's a certain way and these things will get us there, there are all these other ways, which is what you're talking about. There are all these other ways to do and to be and to to work together and to realize something or to have something be in your life right to it it can resonate in very many different ways giving people the opportunity for something to resonate I think is huge yeah and and that's good enough (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly yeah and so around that time I decided to become a proper nomad yeah and so yeah I haven't kept a home for 10 years and that is a different way of living. And yeah, it keeps me, it's part of what keeps me on my toes. I mean, sometimes it's kind of a drag to not have a place, but I have sort of lots of places that would be my second homes, maybe something like that, you know? Yeah. And it does keep a certain level of adapt, uh, a huge level of adaptability and also a real essentialism. Yeah, there's so much in that to unpack. We could have a whole podcast just on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You really, really, you could. I mean, 90% of the time, I love being essentialist and traveling with carry-on only. And, you know, usually if there's like a fancy dress party, like you're hanging out with someone who you can borrow some clothes from or something, you know, there's like very rarely do I miss stuff. Or, yeah, yeah, stuff is never what I miss. Like, and when I think about all of the places and all of the things that I get to do and the activities and the people, I think so often about either these great moments in studio or around those creative spaces or related to those creative spaces and interactions that we've gone out to a, you know, local food, sitting around sharing stories, people, you know, it's a privilege to be hosted and it's also, and also people are privileged to host. And I don't mean that in this, I don't mean it in this political way. I mean, it is an honor to be a guest in someone's space or home or culture and it, and people are honored Mm -hmm. to host in that way. It's so beautiful. A couple years ago, I had the occasion to do a project in Skopje, North Macedonia, which I just didn't know a whole lot about before then. Mm-hmm. And I had no I had no good or bad preconception. I just had almost no preconception. But you know, it was really a fascinating 
space to be brought into and to understand the complexity and you know how the how the history and politics affects people and their pride of place and being I mean which is similar to almost everywhere that I've ever been yeah yeah that's amazing I'm going to bring you back to the Rainbow Refugees in Vancouver now to just talk about Mm -hmm. that organization and your partnering with them because it also feels like there's a a mutual exchange happening in terms of your seeking perspective from them as much as you are like in order for that to inform the work, because I'm, I'm very interested in how this ties in with going back to our opening around this idea of the vision for the work where in the, that old model that would be tied to a kind of aesthetic, to a kind of vision. Everything mm-hmm. would fit within a kind of color palette, within a certain stylistic thing, within a certain kind of, you know, all of these elements would come together so that the aesthetic could be a kind of brand in a certain mm-hmm. way. So the concept and the aesthetic and the the cast and then the movement content and, and the collaborators would all then become this kind of, this is our group, this is how we see the world, this is our vision for a world. When you open up the door for community participants and especially open up the door perhaps even to non-arts professionals, that is going to have an impact on the aesthetic of the work. How do you deal with that? How do you manage that? What is your take on those people being part of the aesthetic? This is a great question. A year ago, we were making a film version of the project because we got funding in Germany for a digital hybrid. So... Mm -hmm. We did a show with without the dancing. We did all the other parts of the show. We worked with oh. chorus. We had installations. It was amazing. It was throughout a whole building, but no dancing, which was, I mean, there was dancing, but the dance piece, which is like uh-huh. what the you know origins of the piece are, wasn't part of it. But we had beautiful video installation throughout that was that part of it and animated by chorus. And when we were doing the filming... We were filming in rural Catalonia and just every, everyone changed plans every day, you know, like, so we were bringing people to this small town and one person was like insisting on coming in and out of Barcelona to do this and just had so many plans change. And I mean, as always will happen in trying to do something, plans change. And I just came up with my three values for this, which were adaptability, generosity, and achievement. And I was like, this is, uh, this is pretty good. These cover it well and keep me from getting tight. Like when I get stressed, I get tight and I start to say no. And so, you know, adaptability and generosity while still with, you know, we have to get where we're going. So I can be adaptable and generous so long as we can all still get where we're going, which was a really great, which is a really great sort of set of values to bring into this kind of work is who knows what will happen, which actually this brings us back to like one of your earlier points about how, what, what happens when I'm doing this work in all these different contexts and how does that inform my choreographic brain or mind Mm -hmm. or you know it is often amazing you know it is amazing to watch everyone do this kind of improv and my and sometimes my favorite is people who've never encountered this before and within an hour and a few sort of simple parameters being dropped in just like rules of the game we're just adding some rules of a game and you just keep playing the game and you know the beautiful things that can happen that are so well, authentic or sincere. Yeah, this is some of my favorite stuff is watching the, yeah. the, the magic happen with folks who do not have this like super sophisticated, you know, historical practice. They are just... Yeah, because nothing gets in the way of true connection, right? There's nothing to get in the way. They can't second yeah. guess themselves and think, you know, like this will not work or this will or plan it. It just they truly connect in that second. Everybody truly connects in that second that it happens. Yeah. yeah. I wanna I wanna just bring you to the when you said you get tight and then you say no. Yeah. I think there's there's a really interesting correlation between those two things, especially with those three values that you mentioned, adaptability, generosity, achievement. Mm-hmm. Because no can be a generous thing to say mm-hmm. in in certain 
in certain times, but for you to selfishly reflect, to use your term earlier, <laughs> and on, on the fact that you would be saying no to shut something down, like you know that's why you would be saying no, is to, to shut that idea down. Mm-hmm. In that moment for you to then be, be generous with yourself and with the other people in the room, you are also realizing that your no would stop people from achieving something that maybe you don't recognize yet. You know, like they, you would stop them on their path to be able to experience, if you like, this idea of ensemble thinking or feel their own bodies in the space. I think it's just a, I think it's just a lovely kind of moment to realize that mm-hmm. even when one of the values is generosity, we still have to pay attention to how, to that being a rule that we don't practice ourselves, you know? Like we're holding ourselves accountable to the same values. Yeah. As a director. You know, as the person in the room who is looked to to lead, there's also we hold ourselves to the same values at all times. That's something I've researched and written about in my own work. But but yeah, I, I find that I find that really interesting. So how do you get from those workshops to uh, which are kind of improvisatories about discovering to mm-hmm. having a chorus that can be in a performance? Like, is there a is there a different is there a process there? This is leading me a little bit back to the work and to to the how you work with the ensemble and your own dancers and how much the concepts that inform your work are also it's important that they know about those concepts but then also how do you, how does your community aspect relate to the concepts that you that you bring into the work? Like how important is it that people know what the work is about conceptually? Is that important for you? I don't think it matters either way. Like I just, I'm just mm. very interested in whether that's important to you that they understand what's underlying the work or is the concept just a way to get you to a physical place? Yeah, this is a great question. <laughs> and for sure, during all of the creative process, I really fluctuated between how much to include everyone in the ideas And really, because the work is talking about trauma, and it's my trauma, and it's the most autobiographical work I've ever made, except for it's also the most abstract work I've ever made, and really took the occasion to amplify impact by multiple bodies or explore the potential of multiple bodies instead of me in my solo work doing like storytelling and dance and science experiments kind of, which is, it's not that it can't be, it's just, well, I guess I've just never done it the other way. And I decided it was time to do it the other way. And back to that thing about the giant pieces and companies I wanted to be part of when I was like 21 or 22. In fact, I just want to be making that work. Like, Mm. Maybe I wanted to be in that work. I don't know. But what I really wanted to be doing is making this big work. So this is like, in fact, I've made sort of grand and intimate solos with a really DIY aesthetic for a long time. And then this is DIY in another way, because now it's sort of eco-sustainable and repurposing things. And But it's ensemble and it's, and it's also grand and intimate. It's... Uh, mm. But it gets to, yeah, in a, in a, I guess the other was intimate and grand, and this is grand and intimate. I see what you mean. I wonder if the listeners will get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the solos were intimate because they were small, uh, but they were grand because they had so much detail and transformation and imagination and this like DIY aesthetic of, of making stuff like of the set design and the multi like the multi use of of stuff to cha- change meaning and context throughout a work, and then this is a bigger. I mean, it's not grand, but it's big. Takes up a lot of space, but the work itself is still quite intimate. So it's just a flip of it. But yeah, yeah. I suppose it brings you closer to the closer to the performers as opposed to like the experience has a kind of intimacy because you're drawn to the performers rather than the performers kind of, yeah, distancing themselves with that kind of fourth wall thing, I suppose. Well, yeah, and this this work, the audience is moving through space and the performers Mm -hmm. are changing spaces within a space. Yeah. 
uh, or the audience can change their relationship to the performance. They can be in, yeah. they can whatever. So, so hopefully there's lots of intimacy or the potential. Yeah. Feelings of, yes, feelings of intimacy, <laughs> sensing intimacy. Yeah. When I was starting to really do this work, I was like, how do you heal trauma collectively? And I went to ask my friend who is a monk and he reflected back to me that some people need to witness things and some people need to experience things. Mm-hmm. And so that is a big part of why this work is constructed and imagined and designed in all of the ways that it is, because it does give people the different entry points. So this piece has taken almost three years to get happening, get happened, <laughs> and <laughs> to get happened. And uh, like a year and a half ago, in May 2022, we had this six-week residency in Barcelona at this creation factory and I like made all the choreography for the seven different sections and it was so exciting and then the video is like dancers in their sweatpants in a naturally lit gray studio Mm. (laughs) and I was like so so I mean if if you are used to watching like that then you can imagine but if you are not used to watching like that it doesn't the excitement this with the thing I envision cannot be seen in this way when you are looking at dancers in the sweatpants kind of. So then I made a whole bunch of collages that were like my expression of the a different way of expressing the feelings of all of this. And that mm-hmm. has really resonated with people. And, and I was like, this is so smart. Mm-hmm. I don't need a postcard that is like, high kicks I need a postcard that is collage that is like kind of visceral and so that aesthetic then informs the designers in making the everything else for the show so when you work with your dancers you talked about choreographing all of the seven you know or like you you talked about you coming up with the these ideas and you creating the choreography and then with your dancers is it a matter of seeing how they interpret your choreography or is there room for and we don't go into need to go into a lot of detail and I'm sure this changes with each work that you're making but when this is about something so personal to you mm-hmm. what happens with your dancers in terms of exchange of ideas or when they're interpreting movement there's an element which that movement is a is very personally attached to you and your story is it enough and of course it's enough for them to take you know, interpret it and that to become content. But more, my question is for your process, like is is that an experience where you become witness to how other people have kind of are embodying your movement or is there more of a kind of discursive relationship or do you allow things to morph and change because these other bodies and these other people maybe inject that material with their own experiences is there room for that or do you purposefully stay away from that or how does that manifest? It's a complicated one. And you already mentioned that it's delicate and complex, you know, and complicated. So I feel like there's something in that. I feel like that kind of in some ways unpacks an element of what you mean by that, you know, how delicate and complex the issues are that you're dealing with, let alone the time that we're in and what we've all, yeah. what we're all experiencing collectively. Yeah. yeah. So the, I was really lucky that the first, I don't know, eight weeks that I had to work, I didn't know really what I was making. I didn't know what each of the sections would be. I knew the broad trajectory. And I had these great improvising dancers because I, it was still during the, I guess I can say this now because it's done. It was during the pandemic and it was really hard to find a place to work. But I got to go to Ponderosa in an hour outside of Berlin because they're a little bit punk rock. And so I could gather eight of us, I think, or something, seven or eight of us for two months almost. And we just like messed around. Like We didn't mess around. I proposed and proposed and proposed. So we did all sorts of creative research and we approached things through the elements and we, you know, we are like, okay, is fear, air and 
what is fear? Is it mud? Hang on. No. What if it's, uh, no, fear should be, you know, like we, we really jammed with how to combine elements and what, what they, in fact, I think fear ends up being metal and that still stands in the work. There's a section mm-hmm. about fear and it's metal. Uh, I guess it's metal and air, but we really like just had these amazing improvising sessions where we sometimes had, you know, like that one, we had tinfoil everywhere and, or those safety blankets, those, you know, reflective safety blankets. And I really went down a lot of different paths in the creative research of making the piece. And now it is really, it's tight scores. And none of those dancers from, no, that's not true. One of the dancers from that very first eight weeks is in. And, and it was a combination of me practicing my own solo improv system based on cues and then giving some of that material to them as as material and then other you know explorations to find i think the thing about for me anyways there's movement that resonates and everyone's own interpretation of it with the imagery is more interesting most of the time to me than the shape yeah i mean there's formation that's important to me also in terms of like the bodies in space and through space yeah. And occasionally, you know, shape, shape is, is relevant to make the image. And, and yeah, and I really also in this human centric care space is like, I find this difficult in that I am not making this work for anyone else to need to bring their trauma into it and to, to work it through. That's not the purpose. However, and I guess this is where it's delicate because also I'm not holding space for therapeutic process for my dancers, for the people I'm working with. I have already done my therapeutic process and now I am making art about it or with it, something like that. And so it's like a bit of a delicate line. Yeah, but there's a craft, right? Yeah, there's a craft that actually protects the human side of you and your individual life experience from feeling like, you know, you leave a part of you on the stage for the audience to criticize and judge and take apart. You, the craft is there to protect the performers, ideally, and the makers from that kind of exposure. I'm so glad you said that. Exactly. Craft. Yeah. Uh, craft I mean with without it without it that's all you have right is that absolute like feeling like you are in the at the mercy of the audience yeah and because and you have nothing to practice there's nothing to practice there's nothing to hone there's nothing to cultivate I'm also being a little bit um, manipulative here because I'm also I also would like to talk about the idea that you talk about cultivating the oblique oh yeah or, uh, or the oblique. I think I'd, I'd like to end with this in a way yeah. because I think this, but I think that there's a, uh, when when you've um, pinpointed something that you focus on, I think in stand-up dance particularly, the idea of cultivating the oblique, from what I understand of that, it is all, it is something to do with craft. It's something to do, and very particularly something to do with, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, something about finding ways to be off kilter or to tilt in the body or to to like to play with falling off or to play with so it's not necessarily the vertical like fully grounded experience there's always this element that everything can kind of go off the rails or you have to find you're cultivating that space am I right is this part of the practice or have I overinterpreted the phrase (laughs) well I mean what you say is true but it's not the way I do it or it's not the way I get into it the processes of disorienting oneself or or un un unlocating (laughs) maybe oh I see yes dislocating (laughs) yeah (laughs) ideally not yeah (laughs) yeah uh no you're you're correct in and that's just such a nice uh, such a beautiful way of putting it so for me, I do a series of switches in movement motif that address all of the dynamics of something to keep switching, but in, to opposites, except for opposites aren't on a line, opposites are in a circle, basically. Oh, or like oh, the right. whole. So it's actually, 
I mean, and this actually is beyond my own understanding of gender theory, but then it is a bit like the gender, there's, you know, it's everywhere and it's everywhere. There's the possibilities are absolutely infinite and endless. And we have been sort of conditioned, and this is actually, it's how I research material to go with an idea or a concept or a theme. And it's, there's like a cheat in it, which is, you know, we understand that to any given stimulus, most of us will have the same first two impulses, which we could broadly call fight or flight. We're all kind of familiar with this. And then, in fact, it's not even the third impulse. It's something after the third impulse. It's like, but it keeps relating to my original idea if I keep switching away from it into another space that this is very, sorry, it's hard to explain, <laughs> or like you really have to follow. <laughs> so. <laughs> so shifting to another space, which is potentially just not the one you were in. You don't necessarily yeah. know what it is, but you know that you're making a switch. You are intentionally switching. You you're are intentionally switching, switching and, you're inten and you're impulsively switching kind of all of the so if you're a dance geek or like when you know when I explain it you you go through your all of your dynamics of dance but basically if you were standing up you're lying down if you're moving fast you are now moving slow if you are circular you're now staccato and linear if you are and this combination of things first of all it puts you out of your movement patterns and Puts you, I mean, it first puts you into your movement patterns, but then it puts you out of your movement patterns once you sort of exhaust. But it is, yeah. like you say, it's actually the same as I could just spin for a while and disorient my body uh -huh. and my movement patterns and then just do something new. But this constant switching away from what I was just at still keeps me in relationship to the original idea. And it is a tangential or oblique relationship to that original idea, which means for me that somehow I come up with material that for me is poignant or sparkly or resonant mm -hmm. in a in a new way that mm -hmm. then it's, that also is like, oh, now I can understand, yeah, now I understand how that, this movement or this expression reflects this idea, which is totally beyond the dominant paradigms that this idea has previously been presented in or is previously being, being, you know, sold to us as, which mm. is eventually kind of my, you know, mandate is like the things that we're not allowed to talk about or the, yeah, something like this, the yeah. non-dominant paradigm. Yeah. And I feel like there's a, there is an element of uh, self, I don't want to say self-healing because I struggle with the words. I'm struggling with the word healing at the moment. Mm. And, you know, and we, and we can find it. We can find it in ourselves. But a lot of the time we do find it by connecting to others, you know, which I think is a very important aspect of it, that we, we're all imaginative beings and creative beings. But sometimes it takes, you know, us being able to converse with another person or move with another person to, to trust it. You know, we do, or pay attention to it. So I think that's um, very exciting. So you are, you, my dear, are in Oslo right now. You are going from Oslo to Berlin, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Um, are these are these residencies with this same piece? Are you? What are you up to right now? <laughs> no, I mean not to open a whole other can of worms, but so I've just been in Tromsø, which is Arctic Circle, Norway, because up there I'm a collaborator in someone else's project uh, as a perform, like as a making performer. Uh -huh. We're making a piece about sex and women acts in change, which is really fun, sort of crazy extravaganza. Yeah. <laughs> about, you know, we're all, I'm, uh, I'm the youngest in my forties. And so we're, and that we all have different, you know, relationships to sex and sexuality. And mm -hmm. so it's an interesting piece. So we're working yeah. on that. And that premieres there, up north in here, up north in northern Norway <laughs> in January. <laughs> 2024. Yeah. 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 Right. And yeah. Uh, now I head back to Berlin and... And mostly we're just getting ready for Vancouver. We have a little more work on this. 
project. And then we're setting up all like putting in place all of the other places that we're going in this coming season. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I'm doing a bit of a teaching tour across Canada on my way to Vancouver. And then the rest of the company joins me in Vancouver in November. Great. So will you be here for most of November in Vancouver then? Yes. Quite, quite precisely all of November. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so when the listeners are, are listening to this podcast, I think you will actually be in Vancouver at that time because it will be around the time of your show. Wonderful. Do you have the dates in, in your head? I do, of course. It's November 16 to 18. 16th to the 18th of November at the Scotiabank Dance Centre. Anna, Anna Tomalia, am I saying that right? Tomalia? Yeah. How do you say it? it? Yeah, Anna it's, Tomalia. It's potato, tomato, potato. Potato, it's, uh... potato, story of my <laughs> life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anna Tomalia, yeah. Anna Tomalia. Anna Tom- I kind of, yeah, I, I'm kind of into Anna Tomalia, but again, that's colloquial. <laughs> So yeah, what, whatever you want. Mm-hmm. So great. So I think we'll leave it there for now. There are other things we could talk. We have so many crossovers here in Vancouver. So. Yeah, there's tons. Yeah. 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 I've had lots of great times yeah. in Vancouver and uh, yeah, I've done lots of things and I'm so looking forward to coming back. I know mm-hmm. it'd be so great to have you here. So I'm really looking forward to uh, meeting up with you when you, when you do get here. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We would love for you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts, as this will help other listeners find us and help us to grow our dance audience. We'll be back next month. In the meantime, you can follow us on Facebook at The Dance Center, Twitter at Dance Center, and Instagram at The Dance Center BC. And if you'd like to support our work, please consider making a donation. Just go to our website at thedancecenter.ca where you'll find extensive information about our upcoming programs and events. The music for the Dance Centre podcast was composed by James B. Maxwell. Always a pleasure to connect with you through dance. Until next time. Mm-hmm.